0: I wonder if you have ever actually thought much about the way that each of the four canonical gospels end a little differently. You ever thought about that? One might possibly imagine that each of these four accounts of the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ would end the same, particularly if they were making it up, they would all compare notes and have it written the same way. That would have, one might think that's how that would go if If I happen to be writing the script, you know, the gospel according to Daniel, perhaps uh, it would close something like this. The crucified and risen Jesus uh, encountering his just uh, adoring disciples who are so eager and ready to meet with him. And then he ascends to heaven and gives them their commands that they immediately go out and they, they turn the world upside down for Jesus. But that's really not how it went. In fact, the Gospels themselves, the four Gospels we have in the New Testaments, they don't end the same way. And have you ever noticed that? The reality is how these accounts end is quite surprising and quite illuminating. For example, after the resurrection, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, contains only a handful of verses after Jesus has risen from the dead. It contains what we know as the Great Commission text. Jesus is uh, empowering the disciples to then go live on mission for him. Mark's gospel ends in an even stranger sort of way. In fact, the best manuscript evidence suggests that Mark chapter 16 actually ends with verse 8. And if that's the case, it ends this way. And listen to what it would say. And they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling and astonished, and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Can you imagine Mark's gospel ending that way? I actually think that it did in that way. If that's the case, Mark ends on a low note of fear without even a single disciple telling anybody about Jesus having risen from the dead. Now Luke chapter 24 is perhaps my personal favorite of the four gospel accounts and how it ends. The ending of the first half of Luke's two-volume account of the life and times of Jesus entails, as you well know, an exhilarating and extended post-resurrection conversation between Jesus and just a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. It is a beautiful and breathtaking discussion. And then all of a sudden, Luke flash-forwards 40 days to the moment that Jesus is uh, ascends to heaven instantly and then he's gone and in fact Luke records the ascension of Jesus two times once in Luke 24 and the second time in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 but John's ending John's epilogue like ending to his account of Jesus as the son of God is probably the ending that many of us need the most you see, John's Gospel importantly contains both a prologue and an epilogue. John chapter 1 is a prologue, or you might say, as literary people today might say, a foreword. And it also contains an epilogue or a postscript in John chapter 21. I say that because when we read John 20, verses 30 and 31, we actually read something that would have served as a great conclusion of John's Gospel. John 20, verses 30 and 31 again uh, provide not only John's thesis, that is his purpose statement, but it really gives a fitting final word for his fourth gospel. John writes there in John 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs, that's a uniquely important word for John, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, another important word and concept in John's gospel in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That would have been a fantastic way to end his book. But it's not the way it ends. These verses would have sufficed as a perfectly fitting conclusion to John's gospel, except for the abject failure of one of Jesus' most prominent disciples. You see, in order to really understand this epilogue, John 21 of divine mercy and forgiveness and restoration, we actually need to go back several weeks before the scene that Joel just read for us. We need to go back to Matthew chapter 26. And here it's Jesus's final night before he endures the agony of suffering and death on the cross for our sin. Here is Christ with his most intimate of friends at the Last Supper, the Passover meal. One of them, Judas, unthinkably has already left the upper room in order to carry out a murderous act of betrayal. But another disciple, perhaps the least likely from among them, was about to get a preview of the darkness of his impending denial of Jesus That would hang over his head like a sign of unshakable shame for many days. And Matthew puts it this way. Matthew 26 verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's a quotation from Zechariah 13 and verse 7. But after I am raised up, notice Jesus says, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Imagine Peter's stunned reaction. He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now go back to John 21. How many times had Peter played back the tape in his mind of that encounter with Jesus? How many tears had Peter shed in the aftermath of their regrettable fulfillment, which is recorded in Matthew 26 and verse 69? Only hours after Jesus' prediction, Matthew Three denials. Three denials bearing witness of this fallen disciple. I don't know him. Not once. Any of us can might be, maybe be excused for having one momentary lapse of denying Jesus. No, Peter denies him three times. Three times. How many times, Lord, have I denied you? Most of us here this morning can identify at least a sum Degree with Peter's colossal collapse into complete moral failure. Perhaps for some it is the failure of moral compromise. For others, your Peter-like moment of betrayal and abandonment is the failure of repeated disappointment. Not so much that you have failed God, but you declare he has failed you. Your plans, your ministry, your kids have not turned out the way that you expected. Yet for others, your failure is defined by your complete and utter lack of trust in Jesus. Betrayed by your unwillingness to tell anybody about him in evangelism or personal discipleship. Listen, the unfortunate fact of the matter is that if you are a human, and I think we all are, then you know the deep emotional pain of being a total failure. We have all failed. J.M. Barry said, we are all failures, at least the best of us are. I was reminded two weeks ago of one of my all-time favorite Winston Churchill quotes. In the speech withdrawing from the race for the Republican presidential nomination, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis quoted Churchill, you might not have noted, but he said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts a good statement about embracing setbacks and failure well listen like Peter I'm going to be a first ballot inductee in the hall of failure that's just the fact of the matter and that is why John chapter 21 is the ending to the story of the gospels that we might not have written but that we all desperately need so badly Now, perhaps some of you are unaware of this, that the Bible actually records not one, but 17 different post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ to others. 17 of them. Most of them occurred during that 40-day period before Jesus' ascension, though there are a couple notable exceptions, including Stephen when he is martyred, including Paul on the road to Damascus, and including John the Apostle, and where we get the book of Revelation. But 10 of these post-resurrection appearances are recorded by the four gospel evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Chronologically, I think Jesus' breakfast on the beach with his beleaguered and broken-down buddies in John 21 is possibly the seventh of them. Seventh. But most notably, it is, we know for certain, the third post-resurrection appearance That is recorded in John's gospel specifically. Why is that significant? Why does John record three. And exactly three. Post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Well I think an answer. Probably the answer to that statement or question. Is that according to Jewish law. A fact was to be established on the evidence of what? Two or three witnesses. Numbers 35, verse 30, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says this. So Jesus' three appearances in John, therefore, establish the apostolic legitimacy and claim that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, it's also been alleged, interestingly enough, that every one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances took place on the first day of the week, that is on Sunday. I think it's hard to know that with certainty. But it's been alleged that at the very least. If this is true. It may account for why the early Christians were able to make the transition of mind. so, So effectively from Sabbath or Saturday to Sunday. Or the Lord's Day being the day in which they gather to worship the resurrected Christ. It is the day when the risen Jesus meets with his people. That he appears to his people. I think that might Have had something to do with it. Well listen in any case. As we come to John 21 in our text this morning. This fifth encounter in our current series. And the one here in John's epilogue. John 21 1 to 19. Is presented us in two major parts. Two major parts. The first part is the part that we'll spend the most time in. But the second part is really the one that has the thrust of this passage. But we have to set ourselves up for it. John 21 verses 1 to 14 is the Lord Jesus revealing himself to his disciples. The key word there, reveal. It's used three times in the text. Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. The second section of this particular passage is found in verses 15 to 19. And here we have one specific disciple, that is Peter, being restored for future service. Jesus reveals himself to seven disciples... This is followed by one disciple being restored to significant apostolic service. Now, in reality, I tend to agree, as is often the case with the late Reverend James Montgomery Boyce, whose commentaries are always so very helpful for me personally, who provides no fewer than nine important lessons, not just behind this passage, but specifically for the church. In other words, what James Montgomery Boyce says is The church has its fingerprints all over John chapter 21, and I think he's absolutely right. Let me just give you a few of these points. We're only going to circle around a couple of them this morning. Number one, we find here the assembled church. I'm going to explain that in just a little bit. Secondly, he says there's the possibility of serving Christ in the energy of one's own flesh. We're going to see that as the guys go out in the boat to fish. He says we find here the fruitlessness of such pitiful efforts, and he's absolutely right. He says the direct involvement of Jesus in the work of the church and the blessing that follows from obedience is also surveyed here in this passage. He says Christ's temporal provision for his followers is found in this text. Jesus making breakfast by the shore. He says the only acceptable motivation which is love for Christian service is hinted at in this passage. He's absolutely right. He talks about the importance of diversity within the church. This is true. Eighth, he says, the necessity of regularly feeding upon the word of God. Feed my lambs is referenced here. And, and ninth, he says, the significance of close personal discipleship for all Christians is highlighted. Again, all of those nine reasons are reasons I would encourage you to go and study John 21 in great detail. But we don't have time for all those points. What I want us to think about is this. There is a palpable sense Of Peter's failure and fear of forfeiting his future usefulness of Jesus. That hangs over the first half of this passage like an early morning mist. Like a fog of futility and fruitlessness over Peter and all the disciples. Listen. The disciples recent betrayal of Jesus Christ. At the moment of his greatest need. Has resulted in a case of relational and vocational blindness. Which comes out conspicuously in this narrative. Let me show you how I get to that thought. Note again with me how the Apostle John. Who was there for the seaside restoration of his rival Peter. Begins the ending to his account of Jesus' life restoring story. John 21 verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that is simply the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. We've already got two uses of the word reveal. The last one's going to be found in verse 14. This bookends the first portion of the passage. The word revealed comes from a Greek word that literally means to make visible, to make plain or to make clear. Jesus is clarifying who he is in the minds of his fallen disciples. This is the point of the first half of this post-resurrection encounter. It is simply to remedy the spiritual blindness of Jesus' disciples, which was obviously the result of their shameful betrayal and falling away from him on the night that he was arrested. Failure often blurs fellowship. When we fail our family, when we fail a friend, it seems to blur the lines of clarity and, and closeness that we have with those that we love. And that was the case for Peter and the disciples. Now, it's interesting that John records that they are, there are seven, and exactly seven, disciples present here for this scene. Look again at verse 2. Simon Peter Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Now, this is a thought that occurred to me at four o'clock this morning. I don't know if there's anything to it. You should probably not preach things that occur to you at four o'clock in the morning. But how many churches were addressed in Revelations chapter two and three? Seven. Seven. There is a sense that a sense in which I wonder if there's a reason why seven is used here. There are seven disciples. Don't miss the irony at the very least. Here we have a crew of cowards like Peter. A crew of doubters like Thomas. Here's a crew of skeptics like Nathanael of Canaan and Galilee. Here's a crew of narcissists like the sons of Zebedee, James, and John. Here's a crew of, well, two guys so completely unremarkable that their name doesn't even get into the chapter. And what's the point? Well, the point is this we should sort of scratch our head saying, are these the kind of people that God is going to use to shake the world? And the answer is, that's the only kind of people that God wants to use to shake the world. I think we need to ask ourselves the question, am I qualified to be in that boat? Because some of us think we've got it all too well together. We wouldn't be in that boat. But listen, you're only qualified To be at the feet of the forgiver. If you're in that kind of boat. Verse 3. I love Simon, Peter. He says, I'm going fishing. Don't judge him. Don't judge him. He had to eat. (laughs) He had to eat. I'm going fishing. And they said to him, as typical followers do, we will go with you. And they went out and got in the boat. But that night, there's the key thing, they caught nothing. Now, we read that, and we read that, and we read that, and we pass right past it. They caught nothing. Talk about adding insult to injury. Now, you have to remember who these guys were. This would be like Mike Dysher from our congregation, and, and Jared Maletta from our congregation, and, and maybe Jake Wesner from our congregation, all getting together and, and going fishing and, and coming back absolutely empty. That's, that's impossible, right, Mike? Where, Mike, are you here this morning? Jake, it's impossible. It's impossible. I worked on that hard this week, guys. I was expecting more from you. Peter and the six other disciples were back home in Capernaum. They knew this lake like the back of their hands. They were fishing at the optimal time to fish on the Sea of Galilee, which is at night. And they trolled all night, and yet, the Bible tells us, they came up empty. They caught nothing. Here's the point that perhaps is now just now smacking you in the face. We are supposed to feel their emptiness. We are supposed to feel in the boat with their embarrassment. How can we show our face again back on the shore in Capernaum with no fish to share? We are supposed to feel their futility. We are supposed to feel their failure. Here in John 21. I wonder if any of, them, any of them in the boat. That it occurred to them what Jesus said. Just weeks earlier in John 15 verse 5. Where he says and you know this line. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me you are empty. Apart from me, you are full of embarrassment. Apart from me, you are a failure. Apart from me, Jesus says you can do nothing. I wonder if you've ever been there. I have. Have you ever been at rock bottom? Peter had failed as a disciple. I don't know the man. And he had failed as a fisherman. I don't have any fish. Everywhere Peter turned in his life, he was coming up empty. He was completely broken. Time to turn in your tackle, Peter. Hey, good tests and teachers, Simon. That one went and got himself crucified. You, don't, you have to wonder if Peter is there in the boat, muttering under his breath in the coolness of the pre-dawn air, saying, God, I am really a failure. There's no way for you to use me. There's nothing I have to do for you. The British Baptist and friend of D.L. Moody, whose name was F.B. Meyer, once wrote this. He says, it is difficult to understand how a man can call himself a Christian. And how he can face the awful possibilities of life. Except he believes that all is ruled by one. Who loves us with a love that is infinite. And one who wields all power on earth and in heaven. If, however, that be your fixed belief, you may find it often severely tested. If, if you have waited this livelong night, can this be Christ's will? I have done my best in vain. Can this be Christ's will? I have labored without a single gleam of success. Can this be Christ's will? Yes, most certainly it is. He writes, listen to this. It is his love which is arranging all in order to teach you some of the sweetest, deepest lessons that have have ever entered your heart. There is not a cross, a loss, a disappointment, a case of failure in your life, which is not arranged and controlled by the loving Savior, and intended to teach you some lesson which else could never have been acquired. He says, fitfully, curiously, and without apparent art or fixed design is the web of our lives woven. Thread seems thrown upon thread at random. No orderly pattern immediately appears. But yet of all that web, there is not a single thread whose place or color is not arranged with consummate skill and eternal love. Close quote. Peter is not here by accident. And he is not empty by chance. Surely such was the case for poor Peter in particular. For instantly, John tells us that as the new day was dawning, love was standing on the shore. Just as day was breaking, verse 4, just Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. Now, how could that possibly be? They just spent three years with him. How do they not recognize Jesus? Well, you got to remember it's early in the morning. Probably at this time, just after Passover, it might have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 a.m. to 6.30, the time when fishermen often would come home from catching their fish at night. There was also low light, and the fog, both physical and metaphorical, was thick. Who knows? But evidently, we're supposed to note specifically that these disciples did not know that the man on the beach was the risen Jesus. Here's the point. Peter's vision and the disciples' vision is obscured by failure. That's the point. Now look, to me, again, there is a clear sense of spiritual blindness on the part of Peter and the disciples that needs to be corrected for failure has blinded them to their fellowship with the risen Jesus. And he's there to help clarify their vision. After three years of walking with Jesus or three weeks or so of walking in their failure, their own identity was blurred, not to mention their understanding and insight of Jesus. For the first time in our story, Jesus speaks. Yet in our English Bibles, we are robbed of somewhat of his dry humor with the disciples. Verse 5 Jesus said to them, Children, you didn't catch anything, did you? That's actually sort of the way that the the verse might be translated. It, It anticipates a negative answer. Kids, you didn't catch anything, did you? Their nets were empty and their faces were flush. They were embarrassed. They were embarrassed. Peter was probably a little annoyed. (laughs) Their answer was no. Now again, guys, remember, they didn't know it was Jesus. Look, for all they knew, it could have simply been a hungry morning customer. Or perhaps a hurried shopkeeper looking for a fresh catch to sell that ordinary day. But this was no ordinary day. And that was no ordinary man standing and staring at them on the shore side. Let me read for you without much comment The remainder of this revealing scene before we come to this wonderful restoration. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, here's John's sort of signature, the disciple's signature here on the letter. Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord, and When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in the place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled in the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And uh, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, guys, stay with me. Have you ever wondered what heaven's going to be like? I think this is about as good a glimpse as any of what glory is going to be like. Bringing some of our meager good deeds, which, by the way, he enabled us to catch in the first place, to add to the rich feast and banquet that he himself has prepared for us on that celestial shore, a transformative moment of insight in the aftermath of struggling with our spiritual eyesight to see who Jesus the Savior truly is. Come and have breakfast. Oh, that is glory. This is the epitome of God's grace. Sharing table fellowship with a boatload of sinners at the dawn of an eternity, an eternally glorious day. If you haven't yet made the connection, there's a great communion connection right there. And we will have communion together this morning. By the way, this must have felt like deja vu all over again to the disciples. It's actually very good timing for Groundhog Day, which was just a few days ago. If you recall, there was another time and another fishing expedition that seemed awfully familiar to the disciples at this particular point. But this one occurs in Luke chapter 5, back at the beginning of the disciples' walk with Jesus. You see, I think Luke 5 and John 21 are intended to be read together and understand as bookends that help to describe not the fanciful or fictional, but the actual story of what discipleship with Jesus looks like. It is full of ups and downs, riding the high and low tide, failure and success following Jesus. Listen to what Luke says in Luke 5, verse 1 and following. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word, he was standing by the lake of of Gennesaret, again, that's the Sea of Galilee again, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. This is Jesus here. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon, in typical form, says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and notice their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. and, And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But Simon Peter saw it, and he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything. And note that word, that next phrase, followed him. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. They followed him. You know, some people, when they read this fantastic scene in John 21, come up with all kinds of crazy questions. Questions like, what's the significance of 153 fish exactly? Well, really, it's not a bad question. Obviously, the Holy Spirit led the Apostle John to record this detail for a purpose And it has some significance. Here's some of the biggest fish stories I found in my study this week. (laughs) Cyril of Alexandria believed that the number 153 was symbolic of the fullness of the church. He understood this to mean 100, meaning the Gentiles, and 50, meaning the remnant of Israel, plus 3, meaning the Holy Trinity, coming together to to form the fullness of the church. St. Augustine interpreted this number in terms of the number 10, the number of the law, the law of Moses, and the number 7, the number of the covenant of grace coming together to form the number 17. Now you've got to stay with me here because this is a big leap. You take the numbers 1 through 17 and you add them all together, 1, 2, 3, 4, all to 17. You add them together and what do you come up with? 153. That was St. Augustine's thought. Who knows? The church father, Jerome, believed that the number 153 represented 153 different varieties of fish that were known to the ancient Mediterranean world, representative of the different ethnicities and different groups of people who would come into the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know what I believe? I believe it simply means that this bunch of fishing failures caught 153 fish at Jesus' command. And I believe further that this scene was intentionally placed here to remind them and us of Luke chapter 5 and the day when the disciples first started walking with Jesus. And the fact that on that day their nets torn apart. But on this day their nets didn't tear apart. What changed about these men? It's a trick question. Nothing has changed. They're still a pack of failures. They're always tripping over their own selves and getting in their own way. But something, in a sense, has changed about Jesus, though he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is the risen Christ now. He is the risen Christ now. Listen. The post-resurrection revelation of Jesus to the disciples, which ends with an obvious and timely allusion to communion, by the way, Jesus taking bread and giving it to them, was a preview, hold on, of what the resurrected Christ is about to do by reaching a hall of humans in the church and changing them by grace through a handful of restored failures. That's the whole point. One writer puts it this way. The time will come when the night of the sunless world shall be over. And the morning of eternity shall break upon us at last. And it may be that in the hour of death we shall find that our work has not been so fruitless as we once feared. On the quiet beach we shall see Jesus standing and know that it is he. Then one last plunge through the chill flood and we shall partake of the preparations which his love has made. And he will say, come and dine. Close quote. Guys, this is glorious. Verses 1 through 14 show us Jesus revealing himself to seven disciples. But verses 15 to 19, and we'll fast forward quickly through this this section here, truly show us the important restoration of one particular disciple, the disciple Peter, whose story would eventually become known as one of the stories of the great pillars of the church in Jerusalem. Think about how different things would be in the New Testament without Peter's restoration. Think about that for a moment. Without this at one-on-one after-breakfast conversation, Peter would not have been positioned in the upper room to make this decisive decision about Matthias to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. Without Peter's restoration, he would not have been the spokesman for the disciples to preach the first Christian sermon at Pentecost and see thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Without this restoration, Peter would not have been standing next to John at the gate called Beautiful with the first miracle of the man who was lame coming and being uh, uh, made healed in the name of Jesus Christ. Without this restoration, somebody else would have given Sapphira the sobering news that the feet of the men who had just dragged off her husband were there to collect her as well for lying to the Holy Spirit. Without Peter's restoration, God would have sent Cornelius' servants to Simon the Tanner's house to fetch some other person to tell them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And without this restoration, James and John would have had somebody else as the third pillar for the Jerusalem church. Peter's restoration was essential. It was essential, but it was also illustrative for you and me. Without this restoration, somebody else might have been carried along by the Holy Spirit to write these words, which are 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 words. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, and you should hear the echo of feed my lambs and tend my lambs and feed my sheep, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Would Peter have written those words, if Jesus had not revealed himself at the Sea of Tiberias. The depths of Peter's fall and failure are even echoed in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, where the young man sitting on the tomb of Jesus that was empty, dressed in white, told the women, this is crazy to catch, go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. I think that is a window into the worry and futility of the apostle Peter. He's not even gathered with the disciples. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you. Look, the evidence suggests that Jesus appeared a few times, not just one time to the apostle Peter. Luke chapter 24, verse 34 says, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. We don't know much else about that appearance, but I think I take that as a different appearance. We also read in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, another name for Simon Peter, and then to the 12. What's the point? The point is that Peter did not easily get over his failing Jesus Christ. He did not get over it easily or quickly. But I'm here to tell you something this morning, that the depths of Peter's depression and failure were no match for the mercy of Jesus Christ. They were no, mer- no match for it. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. Jesus' mercy is more. His grace is sufficient to restore you and to use you. Great failures, somebody once said, make great followers. And great followers make great leaders somebody has said a great follower is not one who first does great things for God but rather a great follower is first one for whom God has done great things in order for Peter to emerge from his failure and feelings of utter ineptitude in order for him to follow the risen Savior and become the face of the early church he had to personally realize Jesus's forgiveness Jesus' restoration, Jesus' kindness on the shore. And so John concludes the scene like this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John. Notice he doesn't even call him Peter. It's the name that he first met Jesus with. Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? Now that could be these fish, but I take it to mean these disciples. Do you love me more than these guys? And he said to him, feed my lambs. Actually, uh, Peter says in reply, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was now grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three denials. Three tender words of restoration. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John tells us this He said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I think that breakfast was mighty quiet that morning. Probably not a lot of conversation had taken place between Jesus and his disciples. But the silence was pierced by a sweet word from the Savior. Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Again, Jesus was reminding Peter who he was before he began to follow him. That's why he only used the name Simon, son of John. There's a sense of reset happening here for Peter in his restoration. He says also, Simon, son of John, do do you love me? Do, Do you love me? These three questions were daggers of divine discipline Piercing Peter's fallen heart in order to totally restore Peter and remind him of Jesus' own profound and undying devotion to this disciple. Peter, you might be struggling to love me, but guess what? I have loved you to the full at the cost of my own life. Total failure requires total forgiveness. And that's exactly what Jesus provided for Peter. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus's restoration, bringing love for Peter, results in a new commission. A new commission as an apostle of the church and witness of Christ's resurrection. Because up until this point, Peter had forgotten who he was. He was walking so well with Jesus, though imperfectly. But now he was fixated on his failure when Jesus wanted him to be uh, engrossed with his identity as a follower of Jesus Christ and the reality of his forgiven nature as a sinful man. In the miracle on the sea, Peter had been reminded of his original calling to follow Jesus and fish for men, and what a catch would soon come at Pentecost. And so Jesus closes with these two words that he says to you this morning. Despite your failure, despite your emptiness, despite the futility of your recent days, Follow me. Peter, your commission comes with a cross. Verses 18 and 19 allude to Peter's own future crucifixion, which is traditionally believed to have occurred in Nero's circus outside of Rome in 67 AD. Peter was crucified for his testimony of following Jesus Christ. We are called, no less, to take up our cross and follow him through self-denial And sacrificial service. Every calling to follow Christ. Every commission to be used by the resurrected Jesus. Comes with a cross. It comes with a call to die to self. It comes with a call to reorient our lives. From being a failure to becoming once again. A follower of Jesus Christ. By his love and grace and power. Follow me fellow failures. For the one has forgiven us. And he's made a way for us. Come, all you sinners, come find his mercy. Come to the table he will satisfy. Taste of his goodness. Find what you're looking for, we sing sometimes. Bring all your failures. Bring your addictions. Come lay them down at the foot of the cross. For Jesus is waiting there with open arms. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, what a scene. And what a Savior. Lord, we thank you for this glimpse of glory. This glimpse of necessary restoration that all of us at some point, even perhaps for someone today, stand in such need of. And fortunately for us, the same Jesus that met with Peter there is the one who is seated beside you in glory. And he provides what he provided to Peter so many thousands of years ago. He provides his love, his assurance, his uh, vocationally renewing grace. Oh, Lord, we thank you. And I pray that this message will be something that changes our hearts and changes our lives for your glory. Use us, O oh Lord, in the days and years to come. You are the God who is able to do so. We pray in your name. Amen.